thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. It's time to kick your shoes off, put your heels up, and listen to how to live your best barefoot lifestyle with your host, the barefoot podiatrist, Paul Thompson. Welcome back to the Barefoot Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Thompson, the Barefoot Podiatrist. And today we're going to start talking a bit more about shoes and a shoe that I talk about uh, quite a bit online and that I've mentioned on the show before. So for those of you who haven't guessed already, we're going to talk a bit about uh, Vivo Barefoot. And I'm really excited to talk today to the inventor, of Vivo Barefoot. So we're going to go back to where it all began and find out a bit more about how this shoe came to be because it's definitely now one of the most popular uh, barefoot minimalist brands around. Um, So big welcome to Tim Brennan, the inventor of Vivo Barefoot. Thanks for coming on the show, Tim. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Paul. It's a pleasure to, to be here. Oh, look, I'm really excited. Like Vivo's, yeah, it's a brand that I wear that I, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard for me not to recommend this brand. It, it fits in with everything uh, that I preach. Um, so, I mean, yeah, thank you for, <laughs> for starting such a cool brand. So, You're welcome. Look, what's, um, just give people a bit of an idea about um, your background. What's, what is your background? How did you get into designing shoes? Because as far as I know, you're not a cobbler. You're not from a long line of shoemakers. Um, how did you get into designing shoes or a shoe? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, my background is that I, I have um, a father who's an Alexander Technique teacher. And right from um, you know a, a young age, he would always talk about uh, school chairs being not good for children's posture. And so that's, that's really, was probably one of the most important influences um, that led me to the idea. So what happened was when I was um, a teenager, I was really, really into playing tennis. And I had a, a fantastic coach. And that was, that was like the most you know, important thing in my life, to be able to compete and get better. And what kept happening is that I kept twisting my ankles. And um, it must have happened like half a dozen times to each ankle. And each time it was um, like weeks and weeks of rehabilitation. And this problem just kept coming back. So um, it was, you know, I think it was sort of a question of time before I started to question the shoes that I was wearing. And I probably had it in the back of my mind. But things really started to click into place when I was studying a mechanical engineering degree. And I ended up with a really, really bad neck from um, being on the computer for about 14 hours every day trying to meet a deadline. And so I ended up um, calling my dad and he was living in Ireland. So it was a bit far away from Bath where I was located. So he, um, he um, connected me with an Alexander Tenney teacher who used to be a sprinter and her name was Colette Lyons. And what she said, um, you know, about the way the body works and what she taught me, not only did it help fix my neck, but it allowed me to, she taught me how to walk in a way which was highly efficient. It was just effortless. 
And I really felt like I was walking the way that we'd evolved to walk, and it was the most powerful experience. But when I put my shoes back on at the end of the class, I would walk home, and it was really, really obvious that my shoes were stopping me from doing what I had been taught to do in terms of walking. And that was that was the sort of very beginning where I knew that that you know I had something really powerful that you know I needed to bring to the world. Yeah, fast forward to um, that was in 1999. So fast forward to 2001. I finished the mechanical engineering degree. And I moved to London to do another degree, which was at the Royal College of Art and Imperial College, and it was in product design. And so they, it, it, you know, they gave me a project to design something that was ergonomic, it could be anything. And so this was like my first opportunity to really express what I've been sort of thinking about for a long time. So I, I started cutting up old, my old tennis shoes, cutting off the soles, and then finding thin material to glue onto the bottom. And I, I, yeah, at first I didn't really have much um, at, at hand, so I just started cutting up my tennis racket cases and, and gluing them onto the bottom to um, produce like a barefoot shoe. And, and what I experienced um, the first time I wore them, I remember it really clearly. It was raining outside, but that didn't stop me because I, I had to try the shoe out. And so I put on these shoes and I walked along the pavements in the rain and it was amazing because it felt like I was barefoot, but no one was giving me weird stares like they normally would. And I just knew at that point that not only did I have a solution to my own ankle injuries, which was really exciting, but I'd, I'd figured something out that I believed could help, you know, every person to, to walk better and to have less injury. That's amazing. Isn't it funny how... We do get weird stares if you're barefoot. We've been so conditioned <laughs> that we have to wear shoes. Like yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just a second ago when we jumped on the call, um, Tim was saying you know, he was running around getting his kids to school this morning and couldn't find you know, their shoes. And I was like, ha, you know, who needs shoes? And Tim was like, well, schools. But it's like we've become so conditioned that you have to wear shoes everywhere. It's so funny. So, yeah, to have a shoe that – like mimics being barefoot, but still allows you to fit into society. It's, yeah. I mean, it seems so simple now that it's been done, but it's like genius, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I started to interview people back in the day because I was walking around the Royal College of Art without shoes on, just to kind of um, prod at people's kind of, um, you know, prejudice. And I was, you know, I was interested to know what people, how people would react. And people were, you know, looking at me and saying, put some shoes on and <laughs> giving me weird looks. And one of the dinner ladies was very concerned about me that I would step on something sharp. And so I, I you know, really got into what really are shoes for. And I really kind of boiled it down to three things that shoes um, have a useful purpose for. Um, first thing is that they protect us from the, uh, the colds and the, the heat. So from extreme temperatures. The second thing is it protects us from sort of stepping on anything sharp that might injure us. And third is that it allows us to, um, you know, fit into society and it kind of gives us uh, like a tool to show status mm. in the world. And 
I thought, you know, all those three things are fine, but it doesn't need to be cushioned or, you know, restrict our feet and all of these other things that it's doing in addition to those three. So, so my, you know, starting point for the project is I want a shoe that does those three things and nothing more. Mm. So with that in mind, how did you then, especially in the early days, I mean, heat and cold, you know, I guess is easier to try and overcome, but stepping mm-hmm. on something sharp, how did you yeah. try and evolve, you know, the shoe um, through that problem? Because obviously a thin um, sole mm-hmm. isn't all that puncture resistant and doesn't give all that much protection. So yeah. how did how did all that evolve over time to to what it is now? Well, um, the, as the project progressed, it actually became my major project project for my degree. And um, and what I started doing was looking in other industries where they were achieving really good puncture resistance with something that was light and flexible. And just through um, you know googling. I found that um, there were these gloves that the, the police officers were using in, in America. Um, so they could frisk a suspect to, to see if they had a, um, a gun, but they didn't want to uh, risk getting AIDS from a needle. Yeah. So uh, there was this material that was um, a finely woven Kevlar. And this was what they were using um, in these gloves to provide like really good feel and flexibility but with punch resistance. So, so I got a hold of some of this Kevlar and started um, u- using it in shoes. And um, at the time, I was, you know, I was really lucky to be on this course because there was actually a patent attorney who came to see us and he helped me write the, the patent application that still is used today that um, you know, provides the puncture resistant using like woven layers. So it was just like a really you know, fortunate thing that happened, you know, all, all at the same time. Like, is it pretty puncture resistant? Do you find like Yeah. That? Has that evolved over time as well, that material, or are you still using the same um, yeah, well, Kevlar layer? We don't use Kevlar anymore, but we use an equivalent. So the, the, the special thing about Kevlar was it was just really strong. And when you make a really thin fiber that's incredibly strong um, into a really tight weave, then you get you get really good puncture resistance. So whilst we don't use you know the Kevlar brand, which is like a trade name, we yeah. use something that's equivalent, but which just doesn't have that name, and so it works in exactly the same way. And uh, so in terms of puncture resistance, it's it's um, you know been measured that if you take out the puncture resistant layer, then you have like a fifth of the puncture resistance. So we're kind of giving giving this thin sole shoe five times more puncture resistance than it would normally have. Yeah, which is amazing. I mean, I like I said before, I wear these shoes and like even with that puncture resistant like material through it, you still do have really good ground feel. Like it doesn't yeah. seem compared to other shoes of similar thickness that don't have it. Like there's not, it doesn't get in the way. And it allows, yeah. like you said before, that flexibility. Um, yeah, the ground feels still similar to, to being without it. So I think it's an amazing feature, especially like my kids or my, my eldest wears and like Vivos to school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even for that, just knowing that if there is, you know, sharp stuff around, 
He's, you know, essentially as barefoot as he can be. He still, you know, fits into society and ticks all the boxes, but at least, you know, I know as well that his feet are that bit safer like with that with that layer. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's great. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. just to back up a bit, can you tell us a bit about the Alexander technique? Well, um, yeah, strangely enough, it came from an Australian who um, he was a reciter of um, Shakespeare around, um, you know, 120 years ago. Um, so he, he found that he, whilst he was reciting, he would lose his voice. And it was a really big problem for him because he was becoming quite successful and um, he was losing his voice and he couldn't perform. So what the doctors were telling him was to take um, a rest from his reciting and not speak for, you know, a couple of weeks. And um, after, the, after two weeks, he could actually, you know, get his voice back to being perfect again. But as soon as he did a full um, event and recited again, he would lose his voice. So what he did was he sat down and watched himself recite in front of a series of mirrors so he could watch himself physically what he was actually doing um, from lots of different angles. And he noticed that he was pulling his head back and down when he was reciting. And that was creating a lot of unnecessary muscle tension in his throat. And he created this, um, you know, uh, Alexander technique as a result of that. But it went far further than just with voice. And he went, he took it into the entire body. So really what the Alexander technique is all about is releasing excess muscle tension so that the body can do what it naturally does automatically. Hmm. So then from a gait point of view, you mentioned before um, the Alexander technique practitioner you saw gave you some tips around walking. Yeah. Is there anything in that you can share with us like around yeah. some of the tips that, like what was natural walking like and what, how did that differ from what you were doing before, like in your case? Yeah, so with, um, with gait, if you watch um, small children learning to walk without any education or anything, just they naturally will flex the ball of the foot about 55 degrees. And once you put a shoe on, it, it changes the stiffness um, that the foot is experiencing. So you do get some flexing, but it's only about 25. Depending on the shoe, it reduces it. So you're not getting the full flexing. And what I was, ex- I, but it really what I was experiencing with my Alexander Tech lessons was that as I was um, going from standing to walking, the first reaction that I would do is to sink down onto one hip. And so instead of, instead of going kind of up to propel myself forward, I was actually sinking down onto one hip to kind of lift one leg up. And it was just using far more energy. And, um, and it just didn't feel, it just didn't feel good. But you get kind of used to things not feeling good. So it's only when someone shows you a different way of doing it that it feels like a huge weight has been lifted off somehow. Yeah, it's funny how we do get used to things and quite often, I mean, some people are lucky enough to have things pointed out before it becomes a problem, but for most people, 
It's not until we really experience pain, you know, and then and stopping us from doing something that we look at posture and, and all those things. I think it's, yeah, like to get back to efficient walking is definitely key. And I agree, like you watch a child walk, and we don't really teach children to walk. They just get up and, you know, over a period of, you know, 12 or so months, essentially teach themselves to walk. Um, yeah. like we're designed to do that and we do it really well. Um, I had a, a mentor of mine once say that walking should technically be the worst way to lose weight. Like walking <laughs> for exercise, it should be useless. Like we are that efficient at walking or should be that yeah. efficient at walking. Um, yeah, that, you know, to do that for exercise, it should be pointless. But for most of us, it's, it's hard work, it's painful um, because of, yeah, like lifestyle um, factors change how we walk and it makes it less efficient. And then, yeah, we start overcompensating. And so, yeah, I think it's um, the, the Alexander technique is definitely under something then. So, yeah, so, what the main thing was then getting out of shoes as a way of correcting your gait as well? Well, I, I mean, yeah, I wanted, um, I wanted to be, to be able to, um, to walk and to, to run, um, much more energy efficiently. But I think that the overwhelming thing that I really wanted to do was just to avoid these ankle twists that mm. I was having. And I, I've spoken um, to a few people about this and, um, it seems like with twisted ankles, the, what the shoe does is it because it's quite stiff, it provides a certain amount of stability from from ankle rolls, and which is which is a good thing um, you think. But what happens is if you get used to that stability, uh, as you approach the limit of the stability, you don't get any feedback that you're approaching that limit. So the only time that you know that you've actually exceeded the limit of the, the shoe's stability is when you've actually gone too far and you've rolled over. And because of the shape of the, the shoe, it's kind of got a corner. So you're going to twist your ankle extremely rapidly. Yeah. And so what I find when you have a completely flexible sole is that as you start approaching the limit, you get feedback because you're requiring more and more muscle tension to hold that stability. And even if you exceed, you know, what, what the foot can offer, the role that happens is slower and the, and all of the natural reflexes kick in. So if I, if I were to step on something uneven now and uh, before I would twist my ankle, I would, um, you know, my knee and hip would adjust to, to kind of, um, roll with the fall, I would actually fall over instead of just twisting my ankle. Mm. So that's that's how I think it protects my ankles. And I, I play tennis in, in the Vivo barefoot shoe now, and I have done, you know, since I was 22. And I've, I've never, you know, had an ankle injury since. So that was, you know, that was the kind of the initial, uh, you know, thing that was driving me forward to, to make the shoe. I think like there's definitely that tipping point, like edge on the shoe, but then a lot of shoes have a heel raise as well, so that puts the yeah. ankle in a, a vulnerable position um, as well. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, even just cushioning can change your uh, ground reaction forces and, and proprioception. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening in, 
in traditional shoes. Um, I think it's pretty funny as well that your dad um, has you know said for a long time that that sitting in chairs is such a bad thing too. Because yeah, when I like I'm a podiatrist and people normally come into me for for pain, but then out of that, I'm really watching how they walk and trying to correct how they walk. And probably the two biggest things that I've found contributing to poor gait techniques are shoes and sitting as well. Like sedentary lifestyles are changing how we move for sure. Is that what your dad sort yeah. of the path he's going down around you know, like changing hip positions and things? Yeah, what, what my dad said is, um, you know, the fact that until recently the European um, law the, the sort of the standards for school chairs made it compulsory that all school chairs slope backwards a certain amount of degrees. So if you look at that from you know an anatomical point of view, you're actually having the pelvis roll backwards downhill away from the desk, mm. which is actually the, the opposite. I mean, if you've ever sat on a hill, you wouldn't really feel comfortable looking uphill sitting on it. You'd actually... You'd actually want to feel most comfortable sitting on the hill, looking downhill. But our chairs are designed the complete opposite to that. So whilst we want to, you know, have children supported as they as they write, we're actually kind of taking the pelvis away and encouraging this kind of C-shaped curve in their spine. So it it really makes um, very little sense until you realise that. When you start asking chair designers why they always do it, they they say that the reason why chairs slope backwards is so um, when they stack the chairs in the school that they don't fall over and, and hurt anyone. And you think, well, this is just insane. And but you know, once you've been doing something long enough, it just becomes normal, I guess. And it's up to product designers to to really have a think about what what they're doing, not mm. just kind of carrying on regardless. Was well, like supporting shoes, right? Exactly. Yeah. Done it for a long time because it was just kind of done. <laughs> so yeah, yeah back absolutely. to um, what's that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, both the chair and the shoe both have a lot in common because they're both symbolic of status. Um, you know, in an office, the most important person will have you know a different chair, and if if someone um, decides that they want to sit on the floor, it's kind of seen as kind of primitive and backwards and not civilized yeah. and it's the same thing with barefoot but those kind of backwards and civilized ways of, of doing things are sometimes the most you know uh, healthiest and best things for our body yeah well it's how we were designed and, and evolved to to move and to be right absolutely so back to the shoes so you design the shoes you try out some some uh, materials that were helping get yourself better and, and on track to a healthy movement and healthy body. So then what happened? How did it go from, you know, the product you were trialing for yourself to, yeah. to launch, you know, into this huge brand? Like, yeah, what happened? How did this happen? Well, okay, so there was, you know, there was a point when I was doing my degree, which was a major setback because in my head, I had designed something incredible. And in the heads of my tutors, they were saying, you can't just base this on your experience. And, you know, inc incidentally, the reason why I called it Vivo 
is because Vivo is used um, a lot in scientific literature as you know because there's, there's two types of literature there's in vivo um, literature and in vitro uh, literature which is in vivo means in a living thing so when you actually study a living thing in science it's called in vivo research so I, w I decided to call my product vivo because I had experienced and designed um, the whole products on my own feet um, but with the kind of backup of the Alexander technique as well. So I kind of mm -hmm. felt like I was completely justified in doing what I was doing. But from the tutor's point of view, they said I needed some medical research. And it was kind of, you know, really, um, uh, I don't know, it was a low point for me because I, I just didn't expect any literature to, do, to exist. But I, I went and, um, you know, did the research anyway, and I went to the British Library and I spent about two months going through all of the literature, going back a hundred years. And what I was finding was that there was a, a huge amount, just kind of, um, you know, with the assumption that cushion soles were the cutting edge best technology. And it was basically just like tweaking that. But there was this other minority of research, which um, was really studying people in... Um, you know, in poor countries, in India and China, for example, where a certain a number of people couldn't afford shoes. So they they were kind of comparing their feet to people's feet in, in the Western world. And they were seeing that all of the problems that we have in the West with our feet are completely absent in those countries. And, you know, people would make the argument that our feet have not evolved to run on hard surfaces. And they said, well, the science is actually showing the opposite because out of all the people that they surveyed in China, it was the rickshaw coolies who would pull rickshaws for, you know, 12 hours a day running on hard cobblestones that had the healthiest feet of everyone that they surveyed. Wow. So, you know, whilst I was kind of going into the library thinking I was, you know, not going to find anything, what I actually found was kind of gold that I was able to, you know, say to the world, this research has been done and we need to bring this shoe to the people who need it. It was kind of, you know, backing up what I had originally thought that, mm. you know, people really do need this shoe. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, so did you come across why, why we have cushioning and stuff? As far as I know, there's not a whole lot of research around it. It was more yeah. just design, right? Like people tried different things, but there was no real reason as to why we started cushion shoes and stuff, is there? Well, I um, I think William A. Rossi, he was a um, a scientist. Um, you can you can Google him. He wrote some really interesting papers about why we wear shoes and in one of them he talks about that and he says that we've incorrectly assumed that the foot is is fragile and needs to be you know um kind of wrapped up mm. in the same way that if you were sending something very delicate like a vase through the post you'd wrap it up in lots of layers of bubble wrap to protect it from being shattered in case it got dropped 
And so we've, we've started wearing shoes that are not allowing our feet, foot to work. And then when we start getting injuries, this kind of assumption about the way we protect things that are fragile comes in and we start putting loads of cushioning on it. But I think you can only really do that if you have really misunderstood the way the foot works and why it's being injured in the first place. Yeah, yeah for sure. Interesting. So then with the shoes, you then managed to convince, talk to the um, the age-old shoe family, Clarks, to get involved. Yeah. How, how did you get the Clarks family who have forever manufactured shoes that try and protect and support feet yeah. <laughs> to, to come on board with essentially the complete opposite of everything they've ever done. How yeah. does that happen? How do you have that conversation? So so I graduated two thousand and two and you know I, I really at that point had um, a very you know powerful you know product and I knew it worked for me and so I, I started contacting all of the major shoe uh, manufacturers in the world. I, I contacted actually the biggest players the ones that could really do this in the biggest possible way to bring the shoe to the people in the biggest possible way. And the response that I got was was very um, flat. I got um, no response from the vast majority. Um, other people, you know, just turned me down without good reason. And, um, you know, I, I was spending all of my time uh, trying to do this, get it. I wanted to also play tennis competitions as well in the shoe, so I was I was you know living on um, you know benefits, uh, writing letters to these companies, not getting anywhere, and then um, you know I was I was feeling like the whole project was going to fail. This was it looked very very certain that nothing was going to happen, and I remember one day I was playing in a tennis tournament with um, with a guy. And I was wearing a, a handmade prototype shoe. It was, a, it was kind of like a tennis shoe that had been cut up and had a new sole put on it. And at the change of ends, my opponent looked at me and said, you know, what are, what are you wearing on your feet? And um, I told him about my whole project, which I, I, you know, normally didn't really talk to people about it because you'd end up having a 20-minute conversation trying to convince them that cushion soles weren't the best idea in the world. So anyway, I told him and he said, well, I've got a contact you might be interested in because I know a guy through tennis called Conrad Clark and he gave me his mobile number. And a few days, a few days later, I rang him. I went to his place and he tried on my Vivo Barefoot prototype and he walked up and down his, uh, his you know, living room in the shoe and he got really excited. And he said, you need to meet my, my brother and my dad uh, Galahad and Lancelot Clark, because they've got, you know, a small shoe company going um, separate to the Clark's brand, and I think they'd be really interested to see your, your idea. Uh, one thing led to another, and they said that, yes, they would, you know, license my um, intellectual property. They'd take on the project, and they'd want me to be involved to develop the first ever production version of Vivo Barefoot. And and so that's that's how it all how it all started. 
It's amazing, hey. It's just, <laughs> it just blows me away that, yeah, like the Clark's family, of all, of all families. But it doesn't surprise me that um, so many companies turned you down. I mean, you were essentially going to turn the shoe industry on its head. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone's been pushing the same direction for, you know, for, for a long time. Um, there's a lot of, you know, marketing behind it and we've been conditioned to believe and think a certain way around feet. So for you to come along and, you know, essentially like tell the shoe, big shoe players that maybe we've got it wrong, I mean, that'd be pretty yeah. confronting. So, I mean, hats off to, to Galahad and, and Lancelot for for being open-minded and, you know, and well, eventually taking on the project, but, yeah, to actually, you know, stop and think about, yeah, what may be needed in the in the industry. So then, well, so they took it on, took on the Vivo branding as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember the first time I met um, Lancelot, he said um, that this was the shoe that he'd been waiting to do for 25 years. Yeah, and wow. he said, this he, this is the six-toe shoe. That's what he called it, the six-toe shoe. And that really was, you know, um, talking about the way that the shoe had so much room for the toes. and But it had even more than that because it had, the, you know, the flexibility. But what's interesting is if you, if you look at the, the origins of Clark's shoes and go back to the sort of um, mid-1800s, there's actually an image that you can find using Google of an old poster um, that Clark's had, and they are very much talking in a very similar way as the Vivo Barefoot shoe, even though the product wasn't as thin and flexible, but they were talking about allowing the foot to, to work and to you know, have lots of space for the toes and being an anatomical design. And I think you know, this, this product now that Vivo Barefoot are doing uh, is is really the next generation of the original Clark's concept to produce an anatomical shoe, but um, yeah, I mean once once you know the market is been has been sort of educated um, that cushion soles are the way forward, the, a lot of shoe companies are you know have to serve that need whether it's a real need or not. Mm. If people want this this product, then you know they have to serve it. And the larger the company, the more they're kind of bound to that. So it is, it is hard um, to change um, the way that a big company does, does business, um, even if the people in the company want to change it. It's just like it has a certain momentum, um, if you see what I mean, of uh, you know, the way that people um, are thinking. Well, I guess, too, it's also to a certain extent what then their customers are used to buying and and conditioned to buy, they still need to essentially, you know, it's business, right? It's hard for yeah. business to just flip overnight and, and say, well, you know, here's our new way of thinking and here's how we're doing shoes now. So, I mean, I do get it from some of these big shoe companies why why it's hard for them to get on board. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm just so excited that Vivo, um, like, happened, you know, that it, yeah, just from your kind of issues with, with your own body to then, like you just went through that whole journey of designing something out of a need for yourself, seeing a bigger picture, and then, yeah, right time, right place, getting 
the right people involved to really launch this and into the great product that it is. But let's talk about, so you've got a new project um, that you are working on and, and wanting to, to bring to life. So what's, what's the new project? What's, what's the next generation of, of uh, Tim Brennan? What's going to be the next kind of Vivo Barefoot that we're going to see? Okay, well, um, so I've really kind of looked at a few stats and, you know, I've, I've said, well, you know, Viva Barefoot has created something incredible. You know, the, the Barefoot running movement is definitely with us. Yeah. And that is, it's, it's maybe something that I, I thought I would never be able to say. So it's an incredible thing that has happened. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, people still have a lot of problems with their feet. And one stat that I found is that currently in the US, about three quarters of adults experience foot pain. And half of all adults in the US say that foot pain stops them from walking and exercising as much as they want to. Um, people are saying that, that this foot pain is profoundly affecting the quality of their lives. And so I very much see that, you know, my work has not yet been completed. And so, you know, what I'm really going for now is to see a revolution across the, the whole of the developed world on a scale that has never been seen before. Mm. And what I really think is necessary is to have the shoes that are aimed at 20-something-year-olds to be the best shoes on the planet. I want the shoes that are most desirable, um, you know, in the world to be the best shoes for feet that you can find anywhere. Mm. And I think when that happens, you know, as we spoke a, a bit earlier about um, chairs and um, how they're similar to shoes. And I think really the, the period when they shape us the most is when we are children because, you know, our feet and our, you know, posture is, is very, very easy to disrupt at that early age. And what and the damage we do to children sets them up for the rest of their lives with those problems often. And it's not like, um, you know, inevitable, but, you know, you can, with the Alexander technique, go through a process of rehabilitation, but it's expensive, it's problematic, and it's just far more sensible to try and prevent people before all these problems start. And so what I really see is if, if, the, um, if the shoes that are aimed at 20-something-year-olds really do allow the foot to work as nature intended, it will filter all the way down through all kids' shoes because kids, you know, once they get to kind of like 10 years old, they're really fashion conscious and they want to be wearing what, you know, the celebrities are wearing and what, you know, their, their older, you know, siblings are wearing, all this kind of thing. So I'm working at the moment to um, to bring you know uh, bring the movement into the mainstream, and I'm um, I'm I'm kind of you know connecting a lot of people in the barefoot running community, and I'm on Instagram as my you know go-to social media platform, and yeah I'm, I'm just you know somehow looking to take this whole movement to the next level where it needs to be. It's going to make the difference that I want to make. Mm. 
which is so important. I completely, 100% agree. Like this starts with the next generation. You know, it's, it's one thing to, like you just said, rehabilitate. And, you know, I work with people all the time trying to fix, you know, their gait issues and biomechanical issues and, and work on fixing pain. But we can avoid all the, the cost, the stress, the you know, time involved in, in doing all that in a lot of cases if we just let kids develop naturally, then support them by not supporting them, just letting their feet and bodies move naturally and you know and, and move as nature intended, like you said, to just be and, and maintain all these you know beautiful movement patterns that they learn as kids and not disrupt them, you know, because, yeah, to prevent stuff is going to be way cheaper in the long run and way easier. And if we can make it cool, like you just said, um, like the battle's kind of over, you know. Like it's <laughs> it's about yeah, reconditioning how we look at feet, you know, how we should be supporting feet. And yeah, I'm 100 percent on board with Tim's um, Tim's project. We had a chat um, the other day about this. And I think it's, yeah, really, really needed um, because, you know, barefoot shoes, it's not just a hippie kind of thing. It's not just a barefoot running craze. It's, this is like something that could really help to shape and change um, our future generations and the way we move as humans. Um, you know, there's a lot of a push around not sitting as much. You know, that's become at the forefront of, a lot of health and fitness things now about more standing desks and, and stuff. But if we're not then also looking at the footwear that's on our feet with standing desks and, and how we yeah, bring the whole puzzle together, then we're going to keep missing part of that puzzle. So, you know, what Tim's talking about here is is huge um, and it's going to require a lot of people. You know, this is not not a small task to change the way the whole human race <laughs> views feet. <laughs> and how we make, you know, doing that cool and, and fashionable. So, yeah, it's, it's time to band together and bring as many barefoot enthusiasts and health enthusiasts and any enthusiasts together um, on a platform. And, and Tim's put his hand up as, you know, as someone to help try and bind this together and, and, and bring this forward. So where can we... Where can we all meet, Tim? <laughs> What's, where can we all start to band together and help, you know, promote and educate and, and start reconditioning um, people around foot health and, and health issues? Well, I think the place to go is to um, my Instagram, which is Tim's Barefoot Shoes with um, underscores between the words. So that that um, is where I will be, you know, announcing any kind of, you know, um, meetings, um, any sort of news that you know of, of how the project is going is going to you know first and foremost be on that platform. So please come along and and follow me there and um, and get involved in whichever way you want to because it's going to be a really exciting adventure that we're going to go on. Yeah, I'll put the link in the um, in the show notes as well. And for those of you who do um, follow along um, with my Instagram and stuff, I'll keep sharing stuff that Tim post as well but yeah be sure to jump over there and um and follow along because yeah the more people that can get involved um the better 
um, you know, the more we can share experiences and share, um, yeah, like just sharing, like experiences, education, just just sharing is going to really help change and start, you know, start talk about um, about these sorts of shoes and ways of moving um, to help normalize it. Because you know, yeah. I still find there can be. Yeah, like a misunderstanding, I guess, around what barefoot shoes are and, and what, it's, what and barefoot living, like people can get a bit confused and, and stuff. So, yeah, the more we can just try and give real, um, yeah, awareness, you know, research and things around this topic is going to be really important. So thanks so much, Tim, for, for jumping on and sharing your um, story and, and journey and and big thanks for putting your hand up and trying to take on this next project of, of taking, you know, barefoot health to the next level. Um, yeah, I'm definitely 100% behind you. I think, yeah, it's really, really needed. Um, and like we, we spoke about the other day, I'm happy to, to do what I can as well to, to get involved and, um, and help, help share um, this as well. So, yeah, big thanks for jumping on. And, and also huge thank you for... For starting Vivo Barefoot, look, it's it's changed the way I viewed shoes. It was, you know, it was essentially the shoe I'd been looking for. Um, you know, I'd been doing podiatry for, oh, maybe, must have been a good eight or nine years when I sort of, and I'd been for several years even prior to that, you know, trying to, I knew barefoot in some way was the right the right way. Um, along the way, I've found different techniques to help rehab people, but the shoes, I could never really find um, a barefoot shoe that, that worked for me. There was some minimalist-type shoes that were around that just it didn't work for me. Um, some big companies that tried to do it, I won't mention them because they're still trying to do it, but it's not really working. Um, but then, yeah, I did come across Vivo, and looked, I mean, I've been in them for years and years now. And So, yeah, big thank you. Very excited to meet the the founder and to find out, you know, how this all came to be. I think it's really interesting and, yeah, really appreciate you sharing your journey. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Paul. And, um, yeah, I think, I mean, the things that, I mean, it has been, you know, an amazing adventure where I get to serve a lot of people with um, with, with this idea. And um, but the thing that it's really kind of brought into my life is, you know, a sense of uh, belonging because, you know, you can you can think that you're the only person on the planet who believes that shoes should be flexible and thin and allow the foot to work. But then what you realise is the, the more you put it out there, you really do realise that there are so many more other people who think like you. And it's it's very, um, you know, comforting. It's an amazing feeling to, to have that sense of belonging. Mm. And... Um, and also to finally get some justice that the foot is not fragile, that it's not, you know, a weak design, some, you know, mistake that evolution made, that it is a masterpiece and get justice in the world for, for you know, the foot. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's an amazing thing to be part of that, that you know, story. So, you know, it, it is a pleasure. It's definitely not fragile. The foot takes a beating. And it's designed to take a beating. Like we need to really yeah, stop this this cotton wool approach to feet because, yeah, it doesn't work. Like using your feet is definitely um, what works. 
And it's amazing too, just with um, you saying is that sense of belonging and that kind of tribe that's starting to build. Just even like with patients, when I start talking about barefoot shoes, they may not have heard about them before, you know, and starting to rehab feet. The amount of people that just seem to like, it's almost like a sigh of relief. They're like, oh, cool, so I'm allowed to do that. You give me permission because it feels better when I'm barefoot or when I'm doing stuff without my shoes all the time. Like, so you're saying it's okay? As soon as you give people permission, sometimes even that's just enough for you to see that, that relief on their face of like, oh, thank goodness, finally. Like someone giving me permission to not have to, you know, wear those tight, cramped shoes. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. The, the more this tribe builds, the better it's all going to be. But, yeah, thanks again for your time, Tim. I know you're a busy man with these big projects. So I'll let you... Go out and keep uh, spruiking this important message. But yeah, okay. once again, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you, Paul. All the best. Thanks, mate. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.